Hello and welcome back to Crowbomba Nation. My guests today are writer, actor, professor at the USC School of Dramatic Arts, and author of The History of Stand Up for Mark Twain to Dave Chappelle, Wayne Fetterman. Joining us also is writer, producer, and professor of television and digital development at the NYU Tisch School of the Arts, Dan Pasternak. Uh, thank you guys for coming. Before we really jump in, uh, I think we do need to address really the major controversy in comedy today. And you guys are the foremost uh, comedy experts. Is Martin Short funny? Uh, you guys can, I don't know, this may take an hour for you guys to decide, uh, or do you have like a quick answer? What What are your thoughts? Wayne, Wayne let, me, let me feel this one, if I may. Take it, brother. <laughs> take it, brother. Okay. By the um, way, before you even start, I just want to say I'm not familiar with this guy, Martin Short, but go ahead. Uh, okay, well, I, I think I can I can make it uh, short, so to speak. Are we are we ready? We're ready. Okay. <clears throat> yes. That's it. That's all. Okay. Yeah, I, I have to agree. <laughs> um, so so yeah, I think we can move on. Uh, I, th I think we solved the okay, entire great. controversy. And, uh, and great talking just... to you, Wayne. Uh, let's be in touch. All right. Love it. All right, pal. Take care. Uh, so, um, so I want to kind of start with, uh, I don't want to go too far, uh, backward, but how you guys got started in stand up. I think Dan, if I remember right, you were kind of more focused on writing or maybe jumped into writing after, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll start with you, Dan. When did you start in the, in the stand up scene and who were, who were some of the guys that you were, that you were working with in those days? Uh, well, I sort of fell into it by accident. So I started going to the comedy clubs in LA, chiefly the improv and occasionally the comedy store, although I was really not old enough to be able to uh, legitimately gain entry into the comedy store because I was going there as a teenager. And at the time, and I think still it's 21 and over. Um, but I was a, a summer intern at Paramount Pictures in Hollywood and started going with friends in the casting department at Paramount. And so I would accompany them to these comedy shows and uh, sort of through going to see these shows became really entranced by the whole scene, got to know a lot of different comics, and then ultimately through uh, a, a dear friend, a gentleman named Jimmy Brogan, uh, came to understand that if I suggested jokes to comedians and they used them, I should get money for that, uh, which was a new and exciting concept to me as a teenager. Uh, so I started writing for a number of different comics, and then some of those comics would say, hey, if I could get you, you know, 300 bucks, would you want to do a weekend with me at, you know, some, uh, you know, uh, comedy club on the road and uh, I wasn't really doing stand-up at the time but there were enough jokes that I had pitched to other comics that they said yeah gee mm, not really right for me that would probably sound right coming out of like someone your age so you know I didn't have a ton of material to start uh, and really no ambitions or ability for 
performing, even though I'd been in like, you know, theater in, in school. Um, but just, you know, opportunity drew me in and I had uh, some really good friends who were advocating for me. Uh, so I was able to, you know, get the stage time. And there was, a, at that time, there was a lot of stage time available. Um, this was the comedy boom of the 80s. And, you know, you could basically pull off of, you know, any off-ramp on any, you know, freeway or highway in the United States, pull into, you know, any public venue of any size and say, I'm here. And they'd say, oh, are you the comic? Because just every place had a comedy night. Well, uh, to me, what, what binds Dan Pasternak to me is, was more our love of, old time comedians. I mean, I was, I was, had been doing stand up since about 82 and during this boom period. But Dan was like, I first heard of Dan when he was like, I don't know, doing interviews with old comedians for the television Academy. And then all of a sudden he had this ridiculous record collection. And so the two of us have a, like a real affection for a lot of comedians that, uh, are no longer alive and fewer and fewer people have ever heard of. Could you name a uh, comedian? This could also be an actor, a TV host who kind of formed your sense of humor where you could say there would be, I could not be funny without this person. Wayne, do you want to take that first? Well, there isn't really one person. So it's, I can't really answer that question because there's, like it's amalgamation of numerous people that I was inspired by. Like, for let me give you just an example. Like when Sam Kennison is somebody I loved, idolized. I don't have any part of his act in my act, but I still like was inspired by what he did. In the same way, um, kind of like Milton Berle, which is uh, one of these old timey comedians that Dan and I both luckily got to know a little bit. You know, I don't, I'm not a brash comic, but I loved what Burl did. So there isn't really one comic, although I would say um, certainly Carson and then Seinfeld and then this guy, Paul Reiser. You know Paul Reiser, Dan, right? You've heard of him. Very well. Very well. Yeah. Yes. I was just, just texting with him the other day. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, it was very funny. So Carol Leifer had posted something on social media about it being, I think, the 45th anniversary of when she, Rich Hall, and Paul Reiser all got passed at the comic strip. Right. And so I texted Paul and I said, well, I guess I should say happy strip anniversary to you as well. And he said, I have a Yurtzeit candle that I light on that very occasion. And I said, <laughs> a awesome. Yurtzeit candle, isn't that to commemorate a death? And he said, you didn't see that set. <laughs> <laughs> do you do you think that Paul, uh, who I also love, do you think that, I feel like today he gets viewed more as an actor than than stand-up. Is, is that fair? Or do you guys think that's also the perception? Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I don't know. I don't know how everyone else views him, but I think of him as a comic who also became this great actor and 
I'm not mistaken, Dan, I think he was just at the city winery doing like an hour and 20 minutes, like just a week ago. Uh, city winery here in New York. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. I think yeah he's two days ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he's still doing comedy. He's not just acting anymore. I saw him maybe six months ago. He came to my little town here in New Jersey and yep. he played the South Orange uh, Performing Arts Center. So uh, we went and then hung out for a while afterwards. And he's as good as ever. I mean, such a solid hour. It's, I mean, if you get a chance to go see him. Uh, I can't I, wait. I can't, again. Highly I, recommend it. Yeah, again, he's one of the guys I just listed. It's like, I just loved everything about him. His delivery, his material, stage persona, the whole thing. Yeah, he had very distinctive, very infectious rhythms yeah, in yeah. his comedy. And, and Wayne has this as well. I have to say, a lot of my favorite comedians also are musically gifted, as, as Wayne is. And, you know, uh, Larry Miller, uh, Paul, I mean, these guys were, are uh, gifted musicians as well as comedians. And I always talk about the music of their comedy. I mean, it's very musical when you listen to just the rhythms. Of course, of course. Yeah, it's, it, it used to kind of always, one of the things that I've, I've talked about this a million times that always used to surprise me was learning that, you know, back in the 70s, especially in 80s, that comedians would open for like big band. Like I think uh, Carlin opened for the Pointer Sisters. Uh, Shoemaker talks about opening for Kenny Loggins. Yeah. And it, 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 it's always kind of surprising to me. But when you talk about it kind of rhythmically like that, it I guess it does make sense. But that's also where the audience was at that time, right? Yeah, I mean, there's there was a comedian by the name of Uncle Dirty who actually opened for Led Zeppelin. I've read mm -hmm. the review of it, so it's it's been going on for a while. <laughs> I think one of the great yeah. routines of all time is Albert Brooks' yeah. routine about opening for Richie Havens. Richie, Richie, <laughs> are you Richie? Are you Richie? No, they're gonna kill you. Yeah. So to kind of zoom outward a little bit, instead of getting into uh, like specific uh, people, let's kind of go to, to some of the eras. Um, and I know this is uh, subjective and I'll kind of put it in a couple of categories. One is stand up. The other is late night slash variety. And, and these eras may be different. Like which, what were, as far as the influences, what you guys loved, what, what would you consider for you, your golden age of late night slash variety and your golden age of stand-up as fans? Well, uh, Dan, do you want to go first? Go ahead, brother. Sure. Um, it's interesting that I don't have a single era but I do look at periods in kind of very um, defined terms. I think about, and it, it really does coincide the sort of birth of modern standup with the birth of um, comedy on television and late night 
it all sort of coalesced around the same time, which is this period in the sort of 50s through the 60s, which I called the new wave. And then there was the period from sort of the late 60s through the 70s, which I called sort of the bridge generation. And then following that, and it's sort of the, the wave in the era that uh, Wayne and I first began in, which was the boom. And so there's so much from that new wave period that informs everything that follows it. And so, and Wayne and I have talked about this a lot, the sort of Steve Allen to Jack Parr to Johnny Carson transition uh, happens simultaneously with the birth of this modern form of stand-up, which is really Lenny Bruce, uh, Mort Saul, Dick Gregory, uh, Jonathan Winters, Shelley Berman, Bob Newhart. Um, and so that period is very dear to me. And it's very exciting because it's all sort of uh, being invented. Uh, but then there's that period that immediately follows it that I think is just as exciting in a lot of ways. And that's that bridge generation. And that's um, where Pryor and uh, Carlin and uh, Joan Rivers and uh, Robert Klein, they all sort of emerged out of that. Um, and, you know, that's really when Carson stopped being sort of the brash new kid and became kind of an institution. Um, and there's amazing stuff in late night, chiefly just Carson, but you kind of have to throw into that conversation a lot of the daytime talk shows that are happening around that time as well. That's kind of where you know Merv Griffin first uh, happened, and then you start to get uh, Mike Douglas and Dinah Shore and even Tom Snyder, which was kind of exciting in its own way, um, although less a venue for stand-up. Um, so I, I love that period as well. Um, I'm probably more romantic about that first era, that new wave uh, era, because it was so um, new and you know, everything felt like it was all being invented. Darren, if there's a there's a great book that's all about the uh, that generation that Dan was uh, waxing about, and it's uh, by a guy named Gerald Nachman. Are you familiar with this book, Darren? Not familiar with that book, no. Yeah. Oh, it's one of the best books about uh, not just stand-up, because it also includes people like Nichols and May and Tom Lehrer and yeah, Stan yeah. Freeberg, you know, people, again, that Wayne and I both have talked endlessly about. Um, but yes, it's called, what, Seriously Funny, right? Correct. Correct, Dan. Yes. Yeah, it's oh, a my, great book. On my list. Yeah, yeah, that book, it, yeah, it's an incredible book. I mean, it is just amazing. Yeah. So um, the only issue I take with that book, and this is this is as someone who teaches stand-up from the 1800s to today, is that I feel like people are very 
I don't bound to uh, the generation they saw when they were kids. Dan yeah. is an exception to that, obviously. I don't think he saw Mort Saul at the Hungry Eye in the 50s. But they, as a rule, people are like, oh, this era that I saw, this 80s. And at the end, it's really interesting because Nachman writes this incredibly well-researched book. There's some mistakes in it, but overall, just a masterpiece. But then at the end, he really takes a real slight, a real hit at the 70s comedians. And which is weird because Richard Zoglin wrote a book about the 70s comedians and how they were the most important generation in stand-up. <laughs> so it's just, it all depends on where you were in your life when you got introduced to these comics. And so it's it's just interesting. But that, yes, I'm kind of second what Dan said. I really like what happened in the 50s and, and early 60s. What I, I, I categorize it as pre-comedy club, which is 63. But um, but we're we're all on the same we're basically on the same page. Yeah, and it, it, it's so interesting. There's a there's a podcast that I'm a a big fan of. It's about the history of uh, 20th century country music. It's called Cocaine and Rhinestones. Yeah, I, I know, know if it. you guys have heard of it. Yeah, it, it it basically kind of follows that kind of same thing of, you know, every generation thinks the last generation was better. Uh, you know, it's like what, what your parents listened to or, or what you heard as a kid, rather. That's the good stuff. And everything <laughs> after that is something different, right? Um, and- well, this is where I have to give major props to, you know, really one of my mentors and one of my dearest friends, Barry Hansen, Dr. Demento. Mm-hmm. Um, Wayne, did you grow up listening to Dr. Demento? Uh, absolutely. I listened to him and the National Lampoon Radio Hour was on Sunday nights on AM radio when I was growing up. Yes. I mean, radio was such a great source for a real real range of uh, great comedy, you know, if you weren't able to, you know, go out and see it live. Um, But Dr. Domeno specifically for me, because his show incorporated all of it. It went back to the beginning of the recording industry right, and right. played, you know, old scratchy 78s and cylinder recordings, you know, from, you know, the birth of uh, monologists before they would even record in front of audiences, they would just go into a booth at RCA Victor and they would record a routine, you know, uh, you know, Uncle Josh at the cafeteria or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, I really started to, uh, I think, through the Dr. Demento show, understand how these influences of each era led to the next, and you know how important those influences were. Uh, I mean, and of course, Weird Al came out of that in that period, and Weird Al talks about how his, you know, Mount Rushmore was. Spike Jones and Tom Lehrer and uh, uh, Alan Sherman and Stan Freeberg. And no so, Benny Bell? No Benny Bell? No Benny Bell. Uh, you know, Al's not Jewish. So right. uh, uh, so probably less Benny Bell and, and Mickey Katz. Um, <laughs> both of whom I grew up listening to in my house. 
but that was the great thing about the Dr. Demento show, which, by the way, Barry still does. Every mm -hmm. week puts out a show on drdemento.com, and it's still this huge survey of material from all eras, from all generations, you know, super, super old. But he was also, like I say, he broke Weird Al Yankovic and yeah, you know, yeah. a, lot of, a lot of artists that you probably, you know, would only know from the Dr. Demento show, like Tom T-Bone Stankus and Barnes and Barnes, who had this big hit song called Fish Heads. I mean, it was all just weird and surrealistic. I mean, I would say, like, if you're an Adult Swim fan, there was so much that I listened to that was so, you know, bizarre from that era of the Dr. Domeno show that felt like proto, <laughs> like Adult Swim kind of humor. One of the things, and Dan, I'd be love to hear your opinion on this, that I teach in my class is that stand-up comedy, and now we're kind of going into comedy with these music songs and things like that, but stand-up comedy for me is a very ethereal art form. It is basically to entertain the people that are alive right then. There are a mm -hmm. few comedians whose routines, I'm, gonna, I'm looking at you, George Carlin, whose routines kind of transcend time, but they are the exception. They are the exception just because it's you. So the references, the reason that I think Mort Saul isn't, doesn't get a lot of love these days is because a lot of kids don't know who Dean Rusk is. So it's, <laughs> so it's, it's really hard. And I mean, that's an extreme By the way, example. right there, I just want to say this right there, Darren, that's what I'm talking about, about the music of comedy. See, that's what a comic does. That is classic Fetterman. That is so gorgeous what you just did. You could have chosen any reference, but- Dean Rusk. And, but not just the choice of Dean Rusk, but the way he articulated Dean Rusk. You know, good, hard consonants that Wayne just hit with a sledgehammer. That was beautiful, Wayne. Thank you. Thank you. A comedy breakdown with Dan Pasternak. I love it. <laughs> but uh, yes, you know, Mort Saul is a great example because, you know, he worked very improvisationally, very extemporaneously out of, famously, the newspaper. Right, so, right. You, you know, even when his albums came out, his albums sort of felt like, you know, a monologue that you, if you weren't in the room or you didn't hear, you know, that mm -hmm. day or that week, you know, the albums already feel felt kind of um, uh, like little time capsules. Yep. Like, uh, you know, I did this documentary about the nightclub, uh, Mr. Kelly's. Uh, you yep. know, I appeared in that sort of talking about all the records, the comedy albums that were recorded at this nightclub in Chicago, Mr. Kelly's. And, you know, I went back and listened to the Mort Saul for President album, which was recorded at Kelly's in 1960. Well, it's all about the uh, presidential race in 1960. So it's all Kennedy versus Nixon in the run-up to that election. So after that election is over, it's sort of like, you have to listen to that album kind of like, oh yeah, I remember that. I remember when that was happening. And right, and it's, it's to me, that takes away a little of the bite of stand-up comedy, in my opinion. When you're listening to something, you're like, oh, right, I remember that, or something to that effect, as opposed to something that's immediate that, like, maybe Sam Morell is doing or something, 
along those lines. Like, I just feel like most of it is like that. Unfortunately, unfortunately, I, let me give you another example out of the politics. Cause as like Henny Youngman, Henny Youngman used to have this great joke. He, he would say, I, I just got back from a pleasure trip. I took my mother-in-law to the airport. Okay. Very good joke, short, clear, but no one knows what a pleasure trip is anymore. No one knows what that language is anymore. So already you're building like a little barrier. And again, this is, and this is, it's very subtle, but it happens slowly over time. It's really interesting to me. Oh, I'll it, go even deeper than that. Cause I go ahead. completely agree with you, Wayne. So I was talking with, this is a good name drop for the three people who are talking to each other right now. <laughs> I, was talk, I had a long phone call yesterday with Elaine Boozler. Mm -hmm. And and Elaine and I were talking about Jackie Mason. Yeah. And I, I don't know about you guys. I'm a huge Jackie Mason fan. Absolutely. And again, and again, this is maybe a little bit, you know, informed. Well, a lot informed by being, you know, a Jew and a Jew who is, you know, second generation, very close to the immigrant experience. But kind of like what I was saying about Benny Bell and Mickey Katz, like those rhythms are very familiar to me. They're very warm, and so much about you know what i loved about jackie mason and elaine and i were talking about this were his rhythms again that great music of comedy like riser told a story uh i i interviewed him for this sirius xm audio documentary i did and he told this great story about going to see jackie mason at dangerfields rodney dangerfield used to have a club here in new york and jackie mason used to perform there and Riser said he couldn't get in, so he was sitting at the bar, and he said, I couldn't hear a word he was saying, but I could hear his voice, and he said just the way his voice would rise and fall, the kind of inflections, the he says, I'm just laughing at that, and I don't know, I don't understand a word he's saying, but I'm just laughing at the rhythms, because his rhythms were funny, but so much of the comedy that came from Jewish comedians who were also very close to that immigrant experience, like those dialects have kind of just through the process of time and assimilation have gradually disappeared. So the things that are so warm and familiar to our ear that we loved in that era of comedy almost feel like something out of time. Like they don't necessarily resonate in the same way for a young audience that doesn't have a connection to those rhythms in that culture. Yeah, and that's the the incredible part about stand-up and also, in my opinion, it's a, kind of a little sad part about it is that mm -hmm. it it is a very generational art form for the most part, for the most part, it is, in my opinion. And yeah, yeah. so. We kind of, and it's funny because I know people of a certain age who are like, there was no one funnier than the Borscht Belt comics that came out in the 50s or late 40s. And then there's other people, there's no one funnier than those 80 comedians. And then there's people like, there's no one funnier than the comedian, you know, Chappelle and that gang that came out of, you know, Washington, D.C. and lower Manhattan. So it's just, it's really interesting what people think of their golden age of stand up, which to answer your question, Darren, to loop all the way back, I believe that there's at every generation creates incredibly great stand-up comedians, and whether they take 
they can t pass the test of time. I don't know because stand up isn't quite like that. But I feel like every generation there's there is incredible golden performers as well as successful performers that are not that talented. So and, and here's what I would encourage but, anyone listening to this. So when I was growing up, as Wayne <clears throat> rightly observed, I did not see Mort Saul at the Hungry Eye. But I would steal comedy albums from my parents, and I remember listening to Lenny Bruce when I was seven or eight years old and laughing because I could tell kind of like what Riser was saying about Jackie Mason, those rhythms, he was funny. But yeah. I did the work then to go figure out what the references meant, you know? So if, uh, like one of the great bits about stand-up is Lenny Bruce's bit about performing a comic going to England to perform at the London Palladium. It's yeah. one of the great bits about stand-up ever. But there's tons of references in it that if you don't get, you're going to miss the jokes. I know. But and then, this is Dan, Dan, I got to interrupt you. This is my point. You don't need to do any work at all to understand what Over the Rainbow is or what the song Stardust or um, As Time Goes By. And the, that's why I'm saying stand up is in a little different category than music. But I think if you can do, a, I mean, the thing is, we all have a supercomputer in our pocket. You can look up who was Julian Eltinge, and, <laughs> you, and then you will get the benefit of that joke. And it's so much more rewarding, I think, to do a little bit of the work to go meet that work where it was. Do you know what I mean? Okay. Because it is, yeah. it is great. You, ju you just don't have those references. But how hard are they to get? really no i'm not saying they're hard to get i'm saying the fact that you have to stop the routine to get it takes the juice out of the routine is more my point it is satisfying and i love doing it but i mean in a way i guess that's why the marx brothers people still love the marx brothers because they're not doing topical stuff they're doing like oh this is a rich lady i'm making fun of this is a thing this you know this is i here on this ship and we're stowaways like it's pretty clear what's going on but yeah. that, that's just my my opinion so you feel like if you go back and do the research on all lenny bruce's re yiddish references and learn all of those that the, the stand-up i agree will get better but it's not as good as stand-up to hit you immediately right i, I I don't know. I, I bought, I remember buying this book. I think you can probably still find it if you go on eBay or whatever yeah. called the essential Lenny Bruce yeah. and it footnotes all of Lenny's routines. <laughs> and, you know, I think that there is something that makes you feel good about yourself. If it's like, oh, I get the reference. Do you know what I mean? It's like everybody likes to be on the inside of an inside joke. And I think people obviously don't like being on the outside of it. But if you do the work, then it's like, oh, okay, then this can belong to me now. And it's and I know I know it's great, and I understand why it's great. So um, yeah, I agree. There's some some comedy that's so easy that you don't have to do any work to understand at least why it's funny. It, by the way, the style of humor also may not appeal to you because that changes 
generationally. Like, I feel like this generation does not tend to embrace irony as, like, a comedic mode. Yeah, I know. It's interesting. But they do embrace, like, identity. And they do embrace, in my opinion, um, lived experience. They love lived experience comedy. Yes, something that feels authentic. Yeah, yeah, Um, yeah. Yeah, it's really but, interesting. Yeah, but I, you know, I have this other theory, Dan. I'm gonna pay, I'm gonna roll it by you. I feel like, in a way, because in the early '90s, Janine Garofalo and Dana Gould and a few other people created something they got branded as alternative comedy, which was basically comedy not done in comedy clubs. It was done at bookstores and things, laundromats, and or in rock clubs, right? So, and it was way more, less stylized in the 80s comedians that I was part of and Dan saw in the clubs and all of that, right? But I have a bigger theory that in a way all stand-up is alternative comedy, that Bob Hope was doing something alternative to the ethnic comedians, and then Mort Saul was doing something alternative to Bob Hope, and then uh, Robert Klein was doing something slightly alternative to what Mort Saul was doing. So that I'll, even, can... I, I, I'll even go a step further, which is like, if you really look at yeah. every generation, there's, you know, a brother Theodore and a professor Irwin Corey right, and right. an Andy okay. Kaufman. And so every generation had their alternative comedians that were just sort of like completely radical, even to the era that they were a part of. Um so yeah, I, I've always found that branding, that alternative comedy branding, to be a little meaningless. Uh, oh no, I don't. It, it was comedy in alternative venues. Yeah, no, I thought it was very meaningful. My point is that I feel like the idea that comedians are rebelling against the style that came before them is something that's been going on a long time. Notwithstanding all of those great comedians and to, who was to get that jazz comedian guy in Lord the, Buckley. The, Yes, Lord Buck, thank you. Thank you, Dan. Yeah, like <laughs> Lord Buckley and all of those. Yes, those are considered outside mainstream comedians. But I'm saying the whole act of doing stand-up in a way is alternative to what happened before you. Right. It's a yeah, bigger I, I don't know if I'm I, right I, about that, Dan. I don't know if I'm right. No, I mean, well, the same thing is true in music. I mean, in yes. that way, you could say that, you know, you know all musicians are punk. Particularly when you're talking about uh, alternative comedy and going from alternative to just what's different. You know, one of the, the big things people talk about now is uh, uh, woke, cancel culture, all that kind of stuff. I'm wondering if now, because we've had these debates for years now, how much do you think the anti-woke, anti-cancel uh, culture is now the subversive thing? And that a lot of people are kind of doing that as almost like a, a counterpoint, if, if that makes any sense. Like they're, it's not really something they maybe buy into, I, I find but it's that, selling that, tickets. That branding is honestly is like the comedy equivalent of clickbait. You know, I tune out anytime anybody goes, I'm anti-woke. I don't even, you know, it doesn't, doesn't mean anything to me anymore. It's just branding. You know, uh, 
I don't know, Wayne. I don't if, if you feel the same way. I I I feel that sort of that, um, you know, defiance against evolving sensitivities is kind of boring. So you, when Bill Maher brings that up and says that he doesn't like woke culture, you feel like he's just branding himself. It's sort of a combination of of of. I mean, I, I think it's uh, there's a part of it that is sincere from him. I, I know. I think it's, uh, you know, it's so funny. Is you know, I don't know if you remember this. Bill Maher, when he was a young comic in the '80s, used to talk about the older generation sort of not getting how times were changing. Like, oh, these kids today with their young hair, with their long hair, and their yeah, yeah, yeah music. You remember that line of Bill's? Yeah, I know. And he talks, he talks about that now that he's that guy that he's like, he doesn't want to be that guy, but he feels like the culture changed. He didn't. And the, and the idea of being a That's liberal, right. the changed. culture does change. The culture I know. Had changed. The culture had changed for those old guys. too. Right, those right, old right. Guys, the, you know, the culture keeps changing. The, you know, it's the challenge, I think, of the artist. You know, I love that you brought up Carlin. Carlin was somebody who evolved literally every hour he was evolving you know he didn't have you know one or two or three distinct periods he kept changing with the times um and i think it's it, it's a very rare artist that well, isn't so calcified in their belief system that is able to do that and i, I agree mean, with that, that. that's a part of what makes carlin so great and so interesting well, yeah, and obviously we're both Carlin devotees. There's no doubt about it. And but I do remember that Carlin did say that political correctness was America's newest form of intolerance. And what makes it insidious? No, pernicious. You know him and his words. That ninth grade dropout. Pernicious was that it came under the guise of tolerance. So that's, it, I always thought that was a really interesting look at it because he hated when anyone told him what he could say, including the most offensive words you can say in the language, he did not shy away from saying. Yeah, uh, but I also want to interject really quickly because I think we, we wrap so many things up into political correctness, wokeness, cancel culture, I think it's all wrapped up into this new thing that maybe isn't really what Carlin was talking about. You know what I'm saying? It's like no, tell me what you mean by that. Yeah, it's like when you know, he said political correctness, which to me was, as someone who studied him extensively, was like he didn't like anyone telling him what he could say. Like he didn't like groups of people telling him what he could say. So that's that was the way he defined it. And would, again, he's a very anti-authority guy. Like Dan, I think we can, like that was his, I feel like that was his driving force from when the time he was at Corpus Christi. Like he just hated the authority. Yeah, but I, th I, th I think for me, and then I'll let Dan chime in. I think to me, I, I think where I would differentiate is the people who are now claiming the authority as the arbiters of, uh, of political correctness, it, it's not really the authority. It, it's kind of more the people who want to kick people down 
who want to say, you know, you can you can say all these, you know, uh, things that people aren't going to like, and by God, they have to take it. To me, that's the subtle difference, if that makes sense. I mean, you know, one of the more famous clips of uh, of George that uh, got circulated quite a bit, and Wayne, I know you know it well from having worked on that great documentary about George, was when Larry King asked him about Andrew Dice Clay. Yeah. And, you know, George, I think, was against any group of people, any marginalized group of people being in the crosshairs of comedy um, because I think he felt that that was uh, punching, a, a, da- punch, punching down. He, yeah, I guess that's the, the common parlance for it, but I think he just felt it was, uh, I mean, artistically lazy, but also, uh, I mean, I think he was a very sensitive artist. I'll share something with you. I had two conversations with George about two bits of his that I didn't particularly like. Now, by the way, I will say this. Probably my favorite comedian of all time is George Carlin. Right, right. And, right. and I will say that there are lots of comedians that I love where I don't agree with everything they say. And that's fine. I mean, you know, comedians take risks and risks come with great rewards, but sometimes you also pay the price for those risks. And I think comedians just have to accept that that's, that's, that's the job. Um, but George had these two bits one was a bit about um, anorexia and bulimia. Yeah, and, yeah. The eat a donut and, one. Yeah. Yeah. And the whole idea was, he said, I think it was really more sort of a commentary on the culture of the United States. Like, you know, only in a country like America, right. <laughs> where there are people starving on the streets, someone can, you know, eat a, you know, a fine meal and then go throw it up. You right, know, right, right. Uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, right. It was about some... American act, act excess more than right. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Okay. But what I said to him because uh, you know around that time I was working on a show about uh, and it, it was by the way it was a half hour sort of you know comedy drama hybrid um, about people with eating disorders and I said right. the thing you're not taking into consideration is that it is a psychological disorder that it is a disease the same with drug and alcohol addiction and that you're talking about people who have a sickness. And he actually said, you know what, you're right. And I didn't really think about it that way. I was really trying to make a comment more on sort of what's wrong with our culture. He said, but, you know, I, I may have used the, right, the wrong example to make a point that I still feel strongly about. And so he gave me ground on that one. Okay, interesting, interesting. The other one was, you know, he had the bit about uh, uh, where he explicitly said it was this was him sort of pushing back on culture, saying people say you can't make jokes about uh, some things. You can't make a joke about funny bullshit. I think rape is hilarious. He says uh, Porky Pig raping, you know, uh, Elmer Fudd or something like that. Mickey, Um, Mickey Mouse in the ass with a big fat dildo. 
was that the line? I re- I think I remember it being Porky Pig and El- and uh, I, I, it may have been both. But anyway, but you know, again, I think Darren I, I, just I, I think Darren just wrote his own joke. That was interesting. <laughs> <laughs> you know, take that out on the road. See how that works for you. Yes, yeah, see how that um, works, Darren. But anyway, I pushed back on that, and you know, he disagreed, and then we went and had a lovely meal. Um, oh, that's awesome. So this is really this is kind of where I come out with this whole debate because we are so tribal. We're sort of this is my yep. team, and that's their team, and this is what I believe, and that's what you believe, and you know, at some point, I can just go. You know what? I don't like that, and I don't agree with that. And by the way, that doesn't mean that I invalidate you or your intentions or anybody else. I can just tell you that I don't like that. And I can tell you why I don't like that. And, you know, uh, sometimes I think we conflate cancellation with people exercising their free speech when they say they don't like your speech. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I agree. And, And I think that was my point with Carlin is... I think he would very much roll his eyes. Okay, when, first of all, I gotta when, stop. When, when, I gotta, I yeah. gotta stop. There's, Go ahead. I don't like anyone who speaks on somebody who's no longer here. So I don't. I agree. Yeah, I, you can't say that. You can say you roll your eyes and you think he might, but you, there's no way you would know whether he would. Roll our dear friend Kelly Carlin, who we all, <laughs> our dear friend Kelly Carlin has spent so much time <laughs> deflecting people exactly you know co-opting her father's work and say this is what george carlin would think about this and i yeah. can just promise you knowing george <laughs> whatever you think george carlin's take would have been on anything you're probably wrong i I do think that I have a little bit of, because I did run for Kelly, the official George Carlin Twitter account for a couple of years. So I, I have mm-hmm. a little bit of insight. So let me, let me phrase it differently. It doesn't seem like George Carlin, in my opinion, would like somebody who sold a Netflix special for $2 million also coming out and saying, oh, I'm being canceled um i'm being harmed maybe maybe that explains it a little better okay i mean maybe yeah, if you guys I, have... I think that george would have had very little patience for the whole this is woke this isn't woke this is cancellation that's not you know i mean i, think I don't know what really... george i don't know what george would have said but i do know what he said and i know he said that about political correctness i know he said that thing about dice and I also know that he said that it was a comedian's job to go to the line, find out what the line is, and then deliberately go on the other side, which means... And some- by the way, there was a great coda to that, to, to deliberately cross the line, take a few people with, and make them glad they came. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Again, he said it a number of different times, but yes, he did also but, say that. But, but-, but I liked that little tag to that, because what that meant was, I know I'm going to alienate some people. Right. I'm okay with that. And the people yeah. who come with me are going to be glad they came. But he was okay with not everybody liking everything. That's, yeah. yeah. I, I think yeah. that was my, yeah. Yeah. 
how could they? How could they? Especially with someone who's trying to be go over the line of what is acceptable or, or offensive. Like that was his mission statement. So not always, obviously, he did get in the plane, not on the plane, but uh, but sometimes, some Dan, sometimes he did that. And I, you know, that's what I loved about the guy. I don't mean liked, lo- that's what I loved about the guy. Okay. And so. Yeah, I, I know we only have about uh, 10 minutes left, but I, I do want to ask this about Carl, just to kind of ask you guys. I'm, uh, and it could be an age thing. I like the later Carlin stuff probably more hundred percent than the early Carlin well, I'm stuff. I'm going to just, going to be just and, saying, and, and, and I, I get a lot of this. I'll, I'll let you guys, uh, fight this out if one of you agrees and one doesn't. Well, Dan seems like he agrees with the later stuff. I don't, I like his seventies hippie stuff in particular, FNMNAM class clown. Those those albums, those three albums, two mm-hmm. of them that I just mentioned. Yeah, listen, I love all eras of Carlin, including the stuff that he disavowed. Like I love takeoffs and put-ons. So do I. Yeah, love yeah. that album. But my favorite George Carlin routine was him rewriting the Ten Commandments. I think that's his most brilliant piece, and it's one of the ones that's rarely cited. And I think it's genius. I think that his writing got sharper as he got older. Like, I think he really, um, uh, he leaned less on sort of playful vocalization Mm -hmm. as a performer and much more on, I think, his precision as a very pointed uh, writer. Right, right. And Dan, I agree with you. Like the writing was incredible. Look, the writing's great all through it, with the exception to me of some stuff in the early eighties. I'm, right. I really love, and I'm with, <laughs> you, I'm with you on takeoffs and put ons. I am really like, I love that album more than you know. And he would pretend like that wasn't even an album. Right. Uh, but, uh, but for me, I just, again, I to me. This the gonna I'm gonna swear the F kids and all of that stuff. I just thought it was kind of lazy, and it was done just to shock people. And then in the next minute he would do the his take on religion, but he loves you and he's he needs money. Like that is as good as that era can get, in my opinion. Agreed. And so I you know I love it all. I love it. I love it all. But for my taste, I thought it was a little less lazy. Believe it or not, when he was a crazy cocaine addict in the seventies. Uh, you guys are both uh, teachers. Let's say you guys were both teaching a class uh, <laughs> on stand-up comedy, and you have to give your students five essential comedy albums to listen to, whatever the era. Uh, Wayne, what are the five that you assign? And then Dan, what are the five that you assign? Well, okay, this is this is a tough one. This is very tough. I, again, not routines. You're talking about whole albums. It could, it could it could be an album, or it could also be a a special. What we, we can do it that way. I, I can do albums, but you know, because I mean, I, I you know it, that 
that's that's very much let's my do one lane. at a day and let's do one at a time let's do one at a time so i might so i don't okay i'm going to start off with um richard Pryor's wanted which is the album of his the, the album version of the live in concert from 79 we start with that you go next uh well i think that uh We've been talking a lot about Carlin, so I'm going to sort of hold him at abeyance. But I, I'm I'm going to give you, I think, one of the most important comedy albums of the '80s, and you'll be surprised by this. Oh, let's do uh, well, it. Maybe you won't be. Let's hear it. Stephen Stephen writes, "I have a pony." Yeah, yeah, that's a good. That is. I thought, I thought it was. I thought it was going to be Meet Bob, but okay. Yeah, that is an awesome album. That is an awesome album. Um. This it's so interesting. I will say, okay, I'm you're just gonna go something stupid like the button down mind of Bob Newhart. It's so funny. I was I had that one locked and loaded. You kind of have to have that one, right? I think it is. I think you got to. It's just so important. I mean, that it won album of the year at the Grand. Like, there's so much to that record. That's crazy. And by the way, your your research on the albums, on what routines he had done first, and what routines he developed down there was incredible, Dan. I really appreciate it. Oh God, thanks, buddy. Yeah, and I, I think we have two albums left. Uh, before I do encourage everybody to uh, read Dan's piece uh, or his series on uh, Mace Sweeney's about his signed comedy albums. It's fantastic. Oh, thanks, man. All right, so oh, we're just doing five between us. Okay, let's go. Let's oh, well, go. no, we can go. I, I was, I was being cognizant of your time. I know you have to leave. Okay, all right. So. No, no, no. I like this question. Dan, you're up. So with Carlin, you know, <laughs> if you can only pick one Carlin album, you know, I get the sense that you're probably going to say either FM, AM, or Class Clown, right? Correct. Correct. Probably class clown above it just because it's got seven dirty words. So if, if we each get one, can I pick uh, again being... Yeah, yeah. Being... Another card uh, uh, Honestly, as long as Wayne can stay, you guys can go back and forth for an hour as far as it's I It's not going to be an hour. See, I can do it. I can go into five <laughs> minutes of bonus time. Keep going. Okay, yeah. I'm going to go with Jamming in New York. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah. Interesting. 92. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good Dan, these are really good. I am gonna go for uh for cultural I think it's called Let's Get Small is the album by Steve. Steve Martin's first. Yeah, yep. I like that album quite a bit. And I just it's, it's I love the way it sounds. It's recorded in San Francisco. I just, I, I, this might be just a personal thing. I don't even know if these absurd routines he did back then would resonate, but I just, I love the album cover, the whole thing. I just adore. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, with, with Steve Martin, it's really yeah. one of the first two albums. It's either Let's Get Small or yeah. Wild and Crazy Guy. And right. the interesting thing about Wild and Crazy Guy is half of it has that sound of Let's Get Small, of being in an intimate uh mm -hmm. setting and the other yeah. half of wild and crazy guy is at like red rocks and it's right. like it, it's the album that chronicled his ascent to being yeah. a cultural phenomenon 
Yeah, you might be right about that. I mean, again, it was, it, I'm on, I was on the fence on both of those. And it also, King Tut is on, this, on uh, Wild and Crazy, correct? Yes. Yeah, okay. All right, so we're, we're in the same. We're picking both of those as one album or something. I have another I'm not, one. I have another I'm not, one. I'm not taking Ready notes. So you guys, you guys just go until you stop talking about albums. I'm another, I have another one. Go ahead. When go ahead, Dan, you're up. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw one in that very few people talk about, but it was really important to the form <laughs> of comedy albums. And if you go back, it is actually one of those albums that really holds up over time. Uh, Inside Shelley Berman. Oh, okay, yeah. But that's like, yeah. I, again, when I get to that era, and I only have to pick one of those talking on the telephone albums, I'm gonna go with Bob Newhart. But I totally get it. Totally get it. All right, here's my one in the holster, ready to go. It's called Skanks for the Memories. Oh yes, David Tell. Great. <laughs> at album. Al at a little club in Denver, you know, the Comedy Works downtown, and just joke after joke after joke after joke. It's Agreed. a machine. You do? Oh, I love it, Dan. Thank you. From the CD era, I would say that's that's one of the great albums. That's incredible. Straight standards. Yeah, all right. Two more albums each, and then I'll let you go. Or one more album each, and I'll let you guys go. It's hard. Oh. It's really it's a really interesting question. I, I'm going to jump. I'm going to – well, go ahead. I have one ready – another one in my pocket ready to go. Go. You go. It's not – I don't know if it was released as an album. I believe it was, and it won a Grammy. I don't even know the title of it. That's the crazy thing. But it would be um, Chris Rock's first special done at the Tacoma Theater in Washington, D.C. in 1996. What was the name of the album? Was it the same as – I think it's Bring the Pain. It's still Bring – okay. Released, then, I, I, yeah. I don't know if he released that, but I think that's what you're talking about. Yeah, no, no, no. That's the special, but I'm just saying I don't know if the album is called Bring the Pain. Um, but that special, I think, is by definition special. Damn, we're doing a lot of agreement. Give me something, Dan. Tell me something that you love. <laughs> um, should should I should I throw something in that uh, you know might uh, shake things up a little bit as a as a as a as a choice here is it going to be the groucho live at carnegie hall dan is it going to be that thing as much as as much affection as i have for that <laughs> it's it's a it's kind of painful actually okay 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 what do you got what do you got brother i'm going to cite something that people will be afraid to acknowledge how great it is but i, I have to say the best constructed routine i think in the history of stand-up oh. is woody allen's yeah, moose yeah, routine. Moose. yeah 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 so and is that on what what record is that on is that the second cold picks yes that is the 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 the, the second woody allen yeah yeah album. yeah that's uh it's so interesting because i mean obviously dan and i are <laughs> woody allen nuts the uh the crazy thing is like I was exposed to that routine from that compilation album. So it's, does that even count as a comedy album, the nightclub years or no? What do you think, Dan? Sure. Sure. I mean, there's, so there's three albums. And if you have those three albums in their entirety, 
there's stuff that's not on the two LP set. Correct. Um, and you know, I mean, the the first album, which was the one he recorded at Mr. Kelly's, has some of my favorite jokes. Mm-hmm. But the, but the moose just is the best constructed piece that- of. Every three words is a laugh. Yeah. yeah, is that is that was that done in Washington D.C. at the the cellar that, door? Yeah. No, I think so. I, okay. That's look at us, right. comedy nerds, stumped. 